0: How bad can California's wildfires get? Climate One conversations feature energy companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton.
1: Tonight, THE DESPERATE BATTLE TO CONTAIN CALIFORNIA'S HISTORIC FIRES IS NOW A RACE AGAINST TIME.
2: 1200 STRUCTURES LOST SO FAR, A NUMBER THAT WILL GROW. SO
1: FAR, FIVE PEOPLE HAVE DIED IN OUR AREA FROM THESE FIRES. THESE ARE THE
2: TERRIFYING SCENES THAT FIREFIGHTERS ARE COMING FACE TO FACE WITH AS THEY TRY TO CONTROL THE FLAMES.
0: THIS IS, uh, WE BELIEVE, A HOME OR SOME KIND OF STRUCTURE, BUT uh, AS YOU CAN SEE, THERE'S NOTHING LEFT OF IT, NOTHING BUT JUST ASHES. and charred up
1: parts. Uh, uh, visibility is less than a half mile here. The Extremely. smoke and the ash in the air, they're taking a toll on cattle operations that are losing their pastures and in some cases, Losing animals. The
3: fire's now totaling more than 1.1 million acres in size. A fire footprint visible from space. More than 600
0: wildfires are still burning in California today. And
3: the state's record heat wave also expected to continue. Residents here know a painful reality that fire season is
1: just getting started.
0: It's not only California that's burning. The 2020 fire season could go down as the worst on record, as millions of acres burn throughout the West from Washington to Montana and down through Colorado and New Mexico. On today's program, we'll explore the impact of wildfires on public health, the economy, and the environment in the age of COVID, as well as the implications for climate change. And we'll talk about how California is addressing these and other fire-related challenges. Joining me now are Wade Crowfoot, California Secretary for Natural Resources, and Julie Cart, environmental reporter with CalMatters. While three of California's largest fires of all time occurred this year, Crowfoot points out that fire is nothing new to the Golden State's forest.
3: Wildfires have historically been a natural part of California's ecology, uh, meaning we have wildfires uh, every year uh, from time immemorial. That being said, a lot of changes have occurred over the last 150 years that have exacerbated our wildfire threats each wildfire season. And when you add on top of that climate change and the impacts it brings, we now have catastrophic fires in ways that we never had them in the past.
0: And Julie, is the state doing a, done a good job preparing for these wildfires? Because it's been the last five years or so that they've really, um, you know, grown in size and 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 impact. How good is the state doing in terms of preparing for these?
2: Well, Greg, I would say the growth that is most pertinent to your question is the extension of the fire season, which is now about two and a half months longer than it used to be. There was a time when everyone got to catch their breath. They got to uh, work on equipment, rest folks, send them off to do other things. And most importantly, do that fire mitigation work, which is cutting trees, cutting brush, burning trees, burning brush, and doing things like that. There's no time for that now. So there is no fire season. There is no downtime. So that's to contextualize You can always, always from where I sit in the cheap seats, say that people could do more, but it costs a ton of money and it's going to require residents in California and the West to accept and actually understand burning and cutting. And that's very, very difficult for people to look at. We're we're kind of reptilian brain hardwired to not like trees burning or people cutting trees, but that's what it's going to take. Uh, And there's just huge complications in in both of those, involving money and time and everything else.
0: Uh, Wade Crowfoot, let's talk about the the cost of this. You know, California is in a big recession, a global recession. Some of the resources planned for uh, firefighting have been pulled back, pulled off the ballot in November. How is this going to be paid for?
3: Well, I think we need to be clear that doing nothing to protect ourselves and our natural places from wildfire will be more expensive than taking preventative measures and strengthening our response. In other words, we have to invest in building our resilience uh, from these catastrophic wildfires. The good news is that recent years have seen major increases of investment, both in the fire response side, you know, more aircraft, more helicopters, more firefighters, more engines, but also importantly on the prevention side. So more prescribed burning, more forest thinning, more community fuel breaks, more home hardening. The challenge, as Julie noted, is this wildfire threat is growing so significantly, we're struggling to keep up investments with the, the growth and the severity of the threat.
0: It may sound counterintuitive to intentionally start a forest fire, but prescribed burns, controlled burns, cultural burns, these are all names for the ancient practice of routinely setting land on fire in order to prevent larger fires. Climate One's Andrew Stelzer spoke with Lania Quinn-Davidson, director of the Northern California Prescribed Fire Council.
4: In the early 1900s, there were more and more Californians living out in wild lands. The forests were considered an economic engine, and fire became seen as the enemy to be suppressed at all costs. Lania Quinn-Davidson says with that cultural change, traditional forest management techniques were mostly discarded.
5: For millennia, people used fire to create the conditions that they needed to survive in California. And... We've gotten out of sync in that way. And the result after more than 100 years of keeping fire off the landscape is that our forests are incredibly dense. The species composition has shifted. We have a lot of young trees growing up under you know, our bigger trees. A lot of our bigger trees have been removed. And a lot of our open prairies and meadows have filled in with trees and brush. And we're just living in a landscape that has much more biomass on it. And in a fire context, that equals fuels. And that's what fuels fires.
4: Over the past few decades, the experts have realized the error of their ways. And after a deadly few years, Cal Fire, Governor Newsom, and even the U.S. Forest Service are on board with increasing prescribed fires in California but it will take time for the institutions to catch up with what nature needs.
5: I think in California we're used to thinking that we're ahead of the curve on things and in the prescribed fire realm we are definitely not ahead, we are behind. Historically, California may have had even four million acres a year burn in wildfire. Cal Fire has a statewide target of 20,000 acres a year. We're nowhere near the scale of prescribed fire that needs to be getting done.
4: Quinn Davidson says she's encouraged by the spread of regional fire councils like hers and even grassroots community groups that are conducting prescribed burns on their own year round as a routine part of their lives.
5: Fire is becoming part of our state identity, and people in California are becoming more familiar with fire. Most people know what prescribed fire is, most people know that fire has some kind of role in our forests and and in our landscape. And that's pretty different, I think, than it was 20 years ago. You know, we're starting to understand that, yeah, fire is a part of California's future and we do need to get used to a certain amount of smoke and um, working on this year round and not just worrying about it during fire season. That's how we're gonna move toward a vision of actually living with fire here. We're not getting rid of it. And I think that's becoming increasingly clear.
0: That was Lania Quinn-Davidson, director of the Northern California Prescribed Fire Council. We're talking about wildfires in the West with Wade Crowfoot, California's Secretary of Natural Resources, and Julie Cart, a reporter with CalMatters. I'm Greg Dalton. Wade Crowfoot, uh, there's been a lot of talk about how California is responding to these fires, and COVID has affected evacuation plans and also the firefighting force. Prisoners have been let out of prisons. Uh, therefore, fewer of them are available to fight fires. You know, COVID has exposed a lot of vulnerabilities in our community. Uh, your agency oversees Cal Fire. Is it right that California relies on prison labor to fight fires?
3: Well, look, I th- uh, the, the use of prisoners you know, who volunteer to, to join um, the wildfire fight um, in ways that can reduce their sentences I do think makes sense, and our uh, firefighting crews uh, from the prisons has been an important part of firefighting in California, and we're appreciative for the contributions that they make. Uh, and in some cases, that experience has allowed them to leave prison and find work in a similar field. Um, so it's part, but only part. We rely on our state firefighters in Cal Fire, but we also have our partners in the U.S. Forest Service. We also have a really extensive mutual aid network where we support each other by locals uh, coming to fight fires in other communities. And then this summer we've been supported by by many states. So these are all sort of pieces of the puzzle or parts of, of our effort to, to fight fires. And they all play an important role in, in protecting our communities in, in years like this.
2: Yeah, there's a long tradition in mutual aid In the fire service, sometimes in California, we think of it as within the state where county and local fire districts would help out. And because of the state's patchwork of land ownership, right now there's fires and and will be in the future Forest Service, Park Service, Bureau of Land Management, Bureau of Indian Affairs. So there's always um, cooperative work. What's ha- again? I'm going to go back to that uh, the the fire season problem. Usually, early in the year, which we're still considering, this is er- considered early in the California fire season. Are we're not asking for resources? We're not requesting resources from regional neighbors with California fires with the kind of urgency that they have the size and the intensity we ha- now have to go to states like Arizona and Colorado and Nevada and Montana and everywhere else where they also have fires so they can't help us they have there's no nothing left for them you know so they have to protect their own state so that's the problem when we start asking in in the past we've asked for help in September, October, when our big wind-driven fires start happening, especially in Southern California, by then the fires are out or they're very minimal. So states can afford to send crews and equipment. Now, when we're asking so early in the season and all the West is on fire, there's just, it's it's too thin. And what, Crowfoot, is this just going to be an
0: accepted part of life? There's no way out of this? We're just going to have to accept wearing masks a few weeks a year in the fall in the Western United States because of uh, wildfires?
3: Look, our our California Governor Newsom put it best, which is if you want to understand the impacts of climate change, come to California. You know, winter and summer temperatures are rising. Our snowpack is dwindling. um, Droughts are becoming more persistent and and, uh, punishing. uh, And as a result, wildfire threats are getting worse. That being said, uh, we can't resign ourselves uh, to doing nothing amidst this reality. We have to continue to lead a global effort to combat climate change, reduce our carbon pollution, and build our resilience. You know, Greg, you and I have talked about climate adaptation, and it used to be sort of perceived as a wonky planning exercise for coming decades. But we know that adapting to these impacts of climate change is a matter of public safety right now. So, no, I don't think we should become resigned uh, to the challenges we've faced over the next couple of years. Uh, And I'm I'm excited that we're taking actions to actually strengthen and protect our communities and natural places from these impacts.
2: Hey, Greg, there's another really compelling reason to get on top of fires, and it has to do with carbon and air quality and uh, not only California's goals for reducing greenhouse gases, but... Its, its impact on our neighbors. Fires do, it's like a triple whammy. They re- produce carbon, black carbon, the worst kind. They put that in the air. They're taking away trees, which are carbon sinks, which pull carbon out of the air. So we, we lose that that value that, that trees and forests offer. And then dead and dying trees lie on the forest floor. and And scientists tell us that they can keep expelling carbon for 250 years. So there is every reason from a resource, from a public health, public safety, but also for this state and others to meet greenhouse gas reduction goals and for air quality issues, which are are quite real. There's every reason to pay a lot of attention and do whatever it takes to deal with these fires.
0: Uh, Wade Crowfoot, what happens after the fires are put out? Uh, There's a lot of risks there, as Julie pointed out. And is there any effort to create an economic case for getting dead, partially burned wood out of forests and using it for some productive purpose.
3: Yeah, well, responding to these wildfires is expensive, but recovering from these wildfires, bringing communities and natural places sort of, you know, back to so-called normal is very expensive. We are spending billions of dollars um, removing sort of hazardous materials that have melted off burned homes. Um, from wildfires over the last couple of years, billions of dollars. Um, And we'll continue to do that, which is why it's so important to reduce the severity, the size of these wildfires. We absolutely need to get more of these so-called fuels, these um, dead trees out of the forest that worsen this catastrophic um, risk. And we need to build incentives to actually do that. So a lot of folks in our state are really excited about building markets for wood products to use these smaller diameter trees, these dead and dying trees for wood products. Uh, and that is showing some early promise to actually create an incentive to get this, uh, these dead trees out of the forest, create jobs, and actually recycle that wood for productive economic use.
0: Wade Crowfoot, do we need to change the way we interact with this this wildland-urban interface, more people moving into the foothills, et cetera? Do we need to change the way we're interacting with nature because these fires are so vicious and deadly?
3: Well, we certainly have to recognize the risk. One in four Californians lives in that wildland-urban interface or extreme high-hazard zone of wildfire. And I think a lot of folks don't fully recognize that. Uh, and if you do live in those zones, there's a lot that you need to do uh, to protect your home and your families from wildfire, uh, defensible space, home hardening. So, you know, first of all, we have to do a better job as Californians protecting ourselves if we live in those in those areas. Um, our rural counties are some of our most economically challenged communities in the state and as we need to bring on housing they envision you know building communities and bringing folks into those counties as an important opportunity to strengthen the economies of their those counties the challenge is of course that um, those uh, new homes that are built are often in those high hazard zones Uh, and in california local land use decisions are made by local government not state government state policymakers are really trying to navigate Um, how we can create incentives for economic growth and and housing development within existing cities, but in ways that don't punish rural economies that also need to grow.
2: And Greg, that, that drives the cost the priorities are life and property uh, to begin with for firefighters. So if, if we didn't live in those areas, we wouldn't have such an imperative, an immediate imperative to aggressively attack and put out these fires. I mean, there are fires in Alaska that burn for months and months and months. They perform a service. They're not really hurting anyone. I mean, there are some resource issues, but that's the problem. We can allow fires to burn in particular areas when they're not threatening people or property, but you have to put out those fires. It is an urgent, I mean, clearly that's, that's the least we can expect from government. So that just puts everybody behind the eight ball because we're all in those areas and all those fires occur there. Uh, as Wade mentioned, 95% of our fires are human caused and so people are around it, so you have to put them out. And it just, it becomes this cycle that is really uh, inexorable and very difficult to get out of.
0: Uh, in past years, studies have suggested that these fires could blow away all of California's other climate uh, progress measures, all the move toward cleaner energy and cleaner cars. These wildfires are erasing the state's progress.
3: Yeah. And again, you know, wildfires are natural to California's landscape and they are part of our ecological cycle. You know, our goal cannot be to rid the state of wildfires. However, To your point, these catastrophic wildfires, the size of which we've never seen before, emit so much carbon dioxide, so much unhealthy air pollution, that they really do uh, present a major threat to making progress, reducing our overall greenhouse gas pollution in the state. So not only do we need to control these catastrophic wildfires to protect people and communities, natural places, we need to do it to meet our our carbon our climate goals. Um, and so it really involves not, again, erasing wildfire from the landscape, but taking some proactive measures to really allow wildfires to burn each summer, but in ways that are much more natural than what we're experiencing today.
0: As we wrap up here, I want to just end on sort of the, the personal note, you know, ways I've been living and cl- breathing climate full time for I don't know, 13 years. And there's something about this year that really got to me, you know, the heat and then the fires, and like, I want to run these air filters, but then I shouldn't run the air filters because that's adding electric you know, load to the grid, and we're not supposed to do that. It just felt like, on top of COVID, it just felt like too much. How much of this can we take, and how are you dealing with it?
3: Well, 2020 has been a, a huge challenge, I imagine, for everyone across the country and across the world. The pandemic brings such uncertainty and anxiety to our lives, you add on top of that record-breaking heat waves. Uh, Where I live in Sacramento, we were looking at, you know, heats of over 110 for multiple days, Uh, and then air quality uh, and from the fires that really disallow much time outside, and you really begin to feel trapped, Um, so this has been a major challenge absolutely that you know i think we're all dealing with on a professional level but more importantly a personal level too Uh, i have a six-year-old and my six-year-old is now accustomed to wearing a mask when we go outside remarkably uh, this wasn't the first time in 2020 she she had that we pulled the mask out um, from one of our boxes because we were living in the bay area and she had a mask for wildfires so i think what wakes me up in the morning is we can't resign ourselves to, these, to this fate. Um, this can't become the new normal. We need to adapt in ways that continue to allow us to live our lives and protect our communities and our families. This doesn't mean that we can erase or completely reverse the impacts of climate change. Those impacts are here, but there's so much more that we can do as we're tackling um, global climate pollution to protect our communities from the experiences that we're we're having here in California this year.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about wildfires in the American West. Coming up, looking at the past to understand the future.
6: We can go back about a century. The modern satellite enhanced record that really gives us a lot more detail only goes back to 1984. But there's some key sort of things that we can look at to really understand how fire is changing
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about wildfires in the American West. Joining me now is Leroy Westerling, professor of management of complex systems at the University of California, Merced, where he researches climate and wildfire. As my previous guest pointed out, fire in this part of the country is nothing new. California has always burned and it always will. As climate change continues to fan the flames with drier winters and longer summers, it does seem like every fire season is the worst ever. But is it really? Westerling offers some historical context.
6: So documentary records, depending on the agency, could go back uh, sort of comprehensively to the 70s or the 80s uh, on state lands to the 50s. And then we have longer documentary records in California for large fires in places like Yosemite National Park, where you can go back about a century, the modern satellite enhanced record that really gives us a lot more detail only goes back to 1984. Um, So it really depends what record you're looking at and what kind of fires you're talking about. But there's some key sort of things that we can look at to really understand how fire is changing. Uh, It's true that California has always had a highly variable fire season from one year to the next, and uh, we're fire prone, and we can get a lot of fire. Uh, Right now, we have fire in just about every type of ecosystem in California. It's about the size of Japan. population is much less than Japan's, but it's still very dense in some places. And uh, it spans a lot of degrees of latitude and, and a really extreme elevational gradient from the highest mountain peak in uh, the lower 48 states of the United States to the coast. And actually in Mojave Desert, the below sea level is uh, Mm -hmm. the elevation there. So there are a lot of different ecosystems here, a lot of variety, and they respond to climate in different ways. And that means that climate change is having different impacts through different routes in different locations. And so we see changes in the fire season and the type of fire and where we're getting it, that are very much driven by climate change, even when it's interacting with things like uh say the buildup of fuels from a century of of fire suppression or or you know uh, a lack of investment in in aggressive fuels management in Sierra Nevada's for example
0: and so there you're talking about Smoky the bear, right we've had a a history of fire suppression, fires are bad, stop them only you could prevent forest fires. How has that contributed to where we are now
6: well, so it contributes to an increase in fuels in forest ecosystems, especially on federal lands and public lands in California so the Sierra Nevada um, used to burn in mid elevations much more frequently than it did in the recent past, and that change in 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 uh, fire rotation or the you know the, the time between when an area would burn uh, was really affected by fire suppression. And then we got much denser fuel. So instead of having an open canopy with a tree here and a tree there, and, and the fire staying down mostly at the surface and not killing most of the trees, we ended up with this dense forest canopy where the fire is burning in the treetops and killing a lot of trees, so much higher severity fire. And that has been exacerbated by climate change because of a number of things, but primarily one warmer temperatures means more evaporation so it's just a greater aridity the spring snowmelt is a really important indicator of how severe the fire season might be and and that's affected by climate change not only because warmer temperatures mean more rain and less snow but also mean an earlier snowmelt for the snowpack that is there and we live in a mediterranean climate where the the summer is a long dry season and what we're doing is we're making that dry season longer by not having the snow there on the ground melting late into the spring and early summer right and and so that just brings the dry conditions earlier and so extends the time when you get a big fire at those higher elevations that interacts with those fuels but the fires that you're reading about today, most of the ones that are getting attention are where there's people, and that's lower elevations. And those are typically not federal lands, and they're typically a mix of different types of vegetation, grass, shrub, and, and smaller pieces of forest. And, and so it, things that we experienced like the campfire in Paradise or the uh, Tubbs Fire in Santa Rosa or, or the Thomas Fire in Ventura, these are all really very impactful on areas where people lived, and they were all late in the year. The Thomas Fire was in December. Uh, It was the first mega fire and the largest fire in state history at that time, and it burned in December after no real significant precipitation until then. The Paradise Fire, again, uh, the conditions were anomalously very dry for that time of year. It was November. They were as dry as the driest summer conditions that we've seen since the 1970s, and really only comparable to dry summer conditions that have occurred in the last several years of warming, right? So, so it was really uh, extreme conditions in late in the year and again, uh, very strong winds. So there's different patterns taking place. And so we see more and more fire in California and it's related to these complex interactions between timing, drying, and uh, um, the type of precipitation that you get, and then how how the landscape's been managed in the past.
0: So what I heard there is that this is a big year, and the worst part is yet to come with the higher winds, usually September, October, even into November. So this was quite an opening act for California's 2020 fire season.
6: And even the uh, fire in Santa Cruz, San Mateo counties, the CZU, August lightning complex is what it's being called, um, is very large by recent historical standards for that region. We we did an exercise with the county of San Mateo uh, for their climate vulnerability and adaptation planning a, in the last two years, where we, we looked at our simulations of wildfire over California that were done for the state climate assessments. And we said to them, hey, you know, by mid-century, the conditions for really large fires in this region increased dramatically uh, in frequency. And uh, let's try to map those out and do some scenarios, some storyboarding to think about how you do emergency management planning, what what the impact would be on transportation and other types of infrastructure, how you'd evacuate people, how you'd fight a fire like that. We, we were simulating them at course spatial resolution, so like six kilometers, and we had to Get it down to, to lines drawn on a map so we have this interactive discussion with all the fire chiefs and emergency management personnel and county officials and um, we drew these maps to mimic the conditions but that were coming out of the simulation but with the knowledge of that community about where the ignitions happen where the winds uh, would Prevailing winds would drive a fire where the fuels would be available to give you a fire that large. And uh, we had several different sizes of fires that we we storyboarded out like that. And the largest one, the worst case scenario, looks just like uh, this CZU complex. And at the time, people were saying to us, how could this happen here even by 2050 with a little more warming, right? Uh, it's not reasonable because we have this moist marine air layer that comes in every night and, and wets down fuels. And we just don't think that we to see a fire that big. And we've already had it now. It's in 2020, not 2050.
0: So you're saying that the fire that's burning uh, has burned this summer is something that experts didn't think could happen for another Thirty years.
6: No, I wouldn't say that we didn't think it could happen because California has this highly variable climate and the fuels are there. And if anything, the reality tends to outpace the models. uh, And we've seen that time and again. It's more that we were saying this is something that could happen. Just because you haven't experienced it doesn't mean it couldn't happen. And we're saying it will become very common, potentially, by mid-century. And they didn't believe that it could become that common by mid-century, and now we've had it in 2020. We didn't have to wait another 30 years to get there, right?
0: So how does this play out? Even if we turned off all the fossil fuels today, say there was a magic switch, you know, if we hit the brakes today, how much momentum is there in the system?
6: We're going to be warming for a long time to come. If if you look at the the scenarios, the more optimistic scenarios, sort of the mid-case scenarios. They don't just rely on us limiting emissions, they rely on negative emissions. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's suite of scenarios, those are the mid-range ones that everybody thinks would be great if we could end up there, actually at this point all rely on us deploying globally at industrial scale technologies that remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fix it. In in a form that where it becomes inert and could be uh, sequestered for a long time. So one of the
0: initiatives that got a lot of attention earlier this year was plant a trillion trees. Right. It's very positive. Everybody loves trees, big scale, Salesforce, Donald Trump. So in a world that's constantly on fire, help me understand planting a trillion trees. And is that really going to, you know, absorb as much CO2 out of the atmosphere as we need?
6: Uh, Well, it's, if you started planting a lot of them here, you know, you couldn't guarantee that they're actually going to hold that carbon long enough, right? If they burn up in a high severity fire within a hundred years, all you're doing is, is giving another pulse of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere right when you really don't want it. (laughs) And uh, um, there's other places where, you know, you may not have enough water 20 or 30 years from now to sustain trees that you're planting today. And yet other places where, um, if you looked at the climate models, you know, they're going to start growing trees on their own, like say higher latitude in Siberia and places like that as warmer conditions, you know, shift that tree belt Northward. Um, but putting trees there also means changing the albedo, you know, it's going to be darker with trees than it is with tundra and, and that, that actually is a positive feedback to climate change. A positive in this case, meaning enhancing climate change, increasing the warming rate. Right. So that's one of the factors, one of the feedbacks that they're looking at in these climate models. So if you go there and you plant more trees there because you say, hey, that's going to be a place where trees are growing in the future. You're just speeding up the the uh, feedback.
0: California has been a leader in the country for moving toward a cleaner economy. A lot of other states have done a lot, too. But how much can these fires erase all of the work that California does for on electric cars and clean electricity and all all these other things? How much of that goes up in smoke with these fires
6: well so it 's not going to negate it right um, if we do a good job on clean energy. I don't have the numbers in my head for California specifically. We we did something similar for the, the northern U.S. Rockies, the northern and central U.S. Rockies, so from the Canadian border down through uh, uh, Yellowstone. And uh, we calculated just on the back of the envelope, if you burned all the trees off in the mountains uh, in one go, you know, it was on the order of magnitude of the... Uh, anthropogenic or human caused emissions from one year in the lower 48 states so and and then it would take a while for that to grow back again before you could burn it so so we're not talking about uh something that's going to swamp you know overwhelm the the effects uh and that of of clean energy investments and and uh more efficient appliances and homes and cars and things like that And that's just because the scale of human fossil fuel use is so immense but there are other natural reservoirs of carbon on the globe that do have that potential right it's not trees in arid places like california it's the carbon in the permafrost in Mm -hmm. latitudes where you really need to keep an eye
2: out
0: so if you look forward Uh, California's had a a startling, devastating start to this fire season. The worst conditions with the higher winds are yet to come. What's the path forward? What should we do to, to reduce the fire risk? We're not gonna eliminate it in the Western United States. Fire's burning in Colorado, Arizona, all around the West.
6: Well, so a lot of the homes that people are gonna be living in 30, 40 years from now have already built. So we need to provide incentives to retrofit those homes to make them more resistant to fire. And we need to provide incentives to manage vegetation around them to make them more resistant to fire. That'll help a lot with the communities. The federal government and the state government are, you know, stepping up their investments in fuels management in the Sierra Nevadas. But there's not a lot of people living up in the mountains there. You know, most of the homes being lost are down at lower elevations, not on, you know, adjacent to public forests. And really, we need to unleash the private sector to, to act in its own interests. So where I live, I live in Mariposa, California. It's a small uh, 1850s gold rush mining town on the way to Yosemite National Park. Both my houses, I have two houses. I'm moving out of one and into another. You know? And they both uh, lost fire insurance. And this is a widespread problem across California. They both have mortgages. You can't um you know be in good standing with your lender uh without fire insurance, but uh the the companies are all withdrawing from the market here because they don't think they can assess the risk. And the state fair plan that's picking up the slack, stepping in uh in order to protect those banks as well as as well as the homeowners, um, doesn't have the information to assess those risks either, because they don't even have any proprietary information that the insurers had. They haven't been in the business that long, and they they don't necessarily have all the information on what climate change has already done to those risks. So uh, a lot of improvement could come from just getting a better grip on what the risks are and what they're going to be going forward for pricing them. Uh, and then, um, you know, if people can get Rebates on what's going to become much more expensive insurance (laughs) after investing in retrofitting their homes and managing the vegetation around their communities. That would provide sort of a virtuous cycle where our communities could become somewhat more resistant to fire because really we have to learn how to live with these fires for a long time to come.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about living with fire in the American West. Coming up, facing up to the long-term health impacts.
1: Even fetuses in utero, those uh, residing in moms that have been exposed to high levels of wildfire smoke, those babies that ultimately end up getting born are seen to have immune disturbances even a decade out.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about the impacts of wildfires. As forests burn throughout the West, many people wake up to the smell of smoke, even those who are hundreds or thousands of miles away. For people who live in fire-prone areas, as well as for firefighters, breathing smoke-filled air is a regular hazard. What are the long-term health effects of people breathing in wildfire smoke? Vin Gupta is Affiliate Assistant Professor at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. Dr. Gupta draws a direct connection between exposure to wildfire smoke and increased vulnerability to COVID-19.
1: There's been a lot of literature studying the acute effects of wildfire inhalation, smoke from wildfires, on the human body, on individuals both young and old. And what, we, what we've seen is that even acute exposure, so a matter of a few hours of inhaling unhealthy air quality from, from a nearby wildfire, can impact the immune system, especially the developing immune system. So our adolescents, uh, even fetuses in utero, those uh, residing in moms in places that have been exposed to high levels of wildfire smoke, those babies that ultimately end up getting born are seen to have immune disturbances even a decade out. And so there are serious impacts. How and when exposure to wildfire smoke increases Uh, the likelihood of infection from COVID-19. We're still trying to figure that out, but there's a clear symmetry between exposure and the likelihood of infection. So any type of air pollution does appear to actually make the human body more susceptible to infection when you're exposed to the virus.
0: So what that means right now with these historic wildfires ravaging California is that anyone who's breathing that smoke, even for a short period of time, is increasing a health effects that may be long-term and possibly their COVID vulnerability. Is that right?
1: That's exactly correct. Before the pandemic, there was actually a lot of attention was being paid to the impact of air pollution alone, whether from car exhaust or from a wildfire on the human body. We had long thought that air pollution is detrimental to the human body, to the heart, the lungs, to immune system development and functioning. Now we know that in fact, and there's great data throughout 2019, published in some of our leading medical journals, JAMA, the New England Journal of Medicine, showing individuals that reside in places that have chronic exposure to high levels of air pollutants, have high rates of death and disability. So that's number one. Number two, to your point, there's there's an enzyme in the body called angiotensin converting enzyme. Name's not important. What is important is this enzyme in and of itself appears to get upregulated in higher concentrations when someone is exposed to COVID-19. So what does that mean? Exposure is one thing. Exposure doesn't guarantee infection, but in the setting of being exposed to air pollution where this enzyme is being upregulated, there's more of it, that enzyme facilitates entry of COVID-19 into lung cells. And so if you have more of this enzyme, you're having more of these bridges between the virus being in the airways and actually get infecting the cells. So that's the concern here is that air pollution is facilitating infection in the setting of exposure.
0: And we've known for a long time that's been well established that uh, communities of color, Black Americans are, you know, disproportionately vulnerable to COVID. Young people tend to think, oh, it's not an issue for me. But if is wildfire changing that equation that people who thought they were kind of protected from COVID before, wildfire could make younger white people more vulnerable?
1: You bet. This has a way of sober of sobering our reality when it comes to who is and who is not at risk of infection with COVID nineteen. Right now, there is a sense of invincibility amongst younger demographics. You see, you see that playing out in how uh, those who've returned to college are are frankly behaving when it comes to parties, whether in the in Greek like Greek life or not, and uh, it's resulted in I think very appropriate disciplinary actions. But this goes to show that. In the setting of a reopening economy, in the setting of these historic wildfires in California, the likelihood of, uh, of a successful infection in the setting uh, when exposed is higher because of all these sort of ancillary threats that are, that are chronically there, in some cases acutely there in the setting of a wildfire, that lower our defenses, that increase our vulnerability. To this virus. So that that's the big concern here. And, and it spans all ages, not just those that are older. What
0: protections can people take for COVID-19 and wildfire? We've heard a lot about, of course, N95 and K95 masks. Uh, I think I've heard you say that you wore a mask that didn't fit for a long time in a hospital. Um, tell us about the masks and what we should do.
1: If you're in a setting where there's a wildfire happening, I, w- I would be paying very close attention to what the air quality index readings are in a particular day. I'd be avoiding probably going out first thing in the morning where winds probably have not had a chance to clear smog, uh, but throughout the course of the day, you'll have that, you'll have that, uh, the wind stream effect and hopefully air quality improves throughout the course of the day, not, not worsens. Obviously it's variable. What I would recommend also is that if you don't have to go out and you're older, don't go out. If you have a pre existing condition, if you have especially a cardiopulmonary condition and you're 50 and older, this is a situation where if you hadn't had somebody go to the grocery store already to get your, your essential goods and you have the ability to, to delegate that task or to get an Uber delivery or some sort of grocery store delivery, this is when I would consider that for this period in time. COVID plus air pollution is a bad combination for anybody. But exposure to COVID in a grocery store, for example, or a department store, in the setting of air pollution, which diminishes all of our immune responses, regardless of age, is a bad combination if you're 50 and older, and in particular, battling a pre-existing disease. And then if there's nothing, and if you just have to go out, you have to get into your car, um, at minimum a KN95 mask, which doesn't require a fit test the way an N95 mask does a mask is only as good as it's fit. We don't talk enough about fit. We just assume that people are u- utilizing common sense to know what is good fit, what's not around the nose and around the mouth and sort of solid seal around the cheeks. There's a lot, that's a. That's assuming a lot. Let's assume it a lot here. Docs and nurses and respiratory therapists need to get tested over the course of 15 minutes once every few years uh, with, a, with a cleanly shaven beard in the case of um, of, of many males because we need to make sure that seal is really tight. And so I I would recommend a a KN95 mask for a lot of individuals. The fit's not fantastic, but it's better uh, than what I've seen from a lot of cloth masks. It's not quite an N95 mask, but these are widely available online. We think that the quality is better than uh, some of the KN95 masks that were on the market back in March, April. There's a lot of mask confusion right now. What, What I can say is, We don't have a perfect mask solution, but masks are are vastly better than no masks, particularly as we're having a national debate on school reopenings, and invariably, children with teachers in places across the country are going to congregate again in poorly ventilated indoor settings. It's going to happen. We just hope it happens smartly, and our elected leaders do the right thing. To protect the public safety,
0: I want to come back to where we started with impacts on children. Uh, you talked about the special vulnerability of children, even pre—you know—in the in utero during COVID and wildfires. There's also the trauma aspect of this. I'd like you to speak to that because uh, there's a climate and COVID. People are just feeling so traumatized by these cascading crises, and how does that affect children, particularly?
1: With the right workplace health and safety measures put in place young people are actually are, are in a sweet spot in some degree they're, they're in some ways blissfully unaware so that's um if you're five and under your life might not seem all that terribly different at least in in a lot of parts of the country right now uh in places like arizona florida and lots of those codes in california where COVID is, has been on the rise even though i know cases are plateauing a lot of these areas where now there's smoke of course, this is going to be traumatic because, especially with our older, uh, uh older age children, five and older, our teenagers, people that, uh, children that need human interaction, want to see their friends. I'm hoping the trauma, whatever has resulted, will subside. But I think this is going to have a deep and double impact in how and how that generation thinks about public health, in the careers they choose, in. How they approach public health when they're, let's say, if they're an athlete in the locker room, when they're traveling uh, on a study abroad mission, who knows what. We've always thought about public health, you know, especially when you're growing up, through the lens of, oh, darn, I need to get my immunizations. I need to get that immunization sheet into the school nurse. I need to get X, Y, Z anti-malarials if I'm going abroad. It's been viewed in some ways as a nuisance. Now it's going to be different so this is going to change collective psychology as uh, for younger generations and i think hopefully these short-term traumatic experiences will of course be remembered but something that we can overcome i do think the silver lining here is that maybe this is going to re-index all of our minds on the importance of public health moving forward which is going to be key because this is not the last time we're going to have a pandemic unfortunately it's just not we've had four or five near pandemics just in the last 10 years and now this is obviously in a whole different scale, but we can't think that there's not a future threat on the horizon, because if we don't think that way, we're gonna have a whole set of disruptions that I think are avoidable the next time something like this comes around.
0: You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about the impacts of wildfires on our health, economy, and climate. We just heard from Vin Gupta, affiliate assistant professor at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. My other guests today were Leroy Westerling, Professor of Management of Complex Systems at the University of California, Merced, Wade Crowfoot, California Secretary for Natural Resources, and Julie Cart, a reporter with Cal Matters. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the Strategy and Content Manager. Steve Fox is Director of Advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.